To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious, and hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope, and I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it is your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. I'm Elizabeth, and today on Signal Boost we have Steph Mataku, author of Flight of the Fantail. Welcome to the show, Steph. Oh, thank you for having me. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Flight of the Fantail? My name is Steph Mataku, and I live in New Plymouth in New Zealand. So if you look at a map of New Zealand and you can see the North Island, there's a little sticky out bit on the left-hand side, and that's where I live, on the West Coast. Um, so I have, on one side of me is the sea, the coast, and behind me is this almost symmetrical volcano. So it's a very, very picturesque place in which to live, and I have lots of inspiration my writing. Sounds like a really beautiful place to live. Yes, it definitely could be worse, that's for sure. <laughs> um, we have this amazing national park that encircles this volcano, Mount Taranaki, and um, a lot of it was inspiration for my book, uh, Flight of the Fantail. And Flight of the Fantail is about a bunch of teenagers so yeah it's a YA novel and it's about a bunch of teenagers who are on camp in a remote part of New Zealand and their bus goes over the side of a cliff and half of them die this isn't a spoiler that happens on like page three <laughs> so um, half of them die and then the other half are sort of washed down this river and they're popping out of the river at, at different points and then these little little Bunches of survivors are heading back through the bush, trying to get back to the crash site where they figure that that's where the rescuers are going to be. And these are city kids, you know, so they're not used to being in the bush and it's raining hard out and they've got no food and they've got no phones because all the phones have inexplicably stopped working. And, um, yeah, and so that's pretty much the setting. So did you base that off uh, where you're living um, it definitely gave me inspiration for it because it doesn't take, you know, there's a lot of bush tracks and there's a lot of things, um, a lot of places you can explore in New Plymouth. Like I live in a town, but there's a lot of parks and a lot of um, dense sort of bush area. And it's really easy to just go in there and amongst all the tree ferns and imagine yourself completely lost and isolated, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely a big a big part of my story. I think of it as another character, really, that bush setting. Now, I understand that New Zealand has no significant predators um, and certainly no native snakes, which is a bit refreshing as an Australian. <laughs> oh, we have nothing, really. <laughs> Did it make it a challenge for you to come up with suitable threats for your characters? Um, I think 
in the New Zealand bush, we might not have, you know, um, you know, snakes and crocodiles and lions and stuff, but the, the environment itself can be really, really hostile. I mean, hypothermia is no joke. You can, you can die overnight of exposure, you know, so it's, um, you know, even though we don't have many four-legged creatures that can kill you, the, the bush certainly does. And there's that whole kind of paranoia thing that comes with being lost in the bush as well. It's really, really easy to get lost if you move off a, off a path, you know, just a, a couple of meters, you turn around, the path isn't there anymore. You can't see it because there's too many trees. The undergrowth is really, really thick. So, um, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not the safest place to be, even for an experienced bush person, I suppose. So as well as being grounded in the landscape, it's also steeped in New Zealand's cultures. Um, and would you say that's always been an important feature of your work? Yes, I think so. I am Māori. My dad is Māori and my mum is Pākehā or European, of European descent, but I identify as Māori. And um, I feel it's really important for me to write about my culture and get that Indigenous flavour on the page because it's it's original. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's very unique to us and it's interesting and it's beautiful and it's also... Um, it's important for us as Māori people to be able to see ourselves on the page and to, especially for kids, especially for Māori kids, to be able to see themselves represented on the page and know that they are worthy of being written about. So I do have this kind of mission in the back of my head that, you know, most of my characters that I write about are Māori and I try to incorporate a lot of Māori worldview and Flight of the Fantail incorporates a lot of mythology, that kind of spiritual nature. So I've, I've tried to apply that through the book as well. It was one of the elements I really enjoyed about it, actually. So I think you did a good job. Oh, thank you. Now, Flight of the Fantail was written as part of the Te Papa Tupu writing program? Yes, that's right. So yep. can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the Te Papa Tupu program is a program set up by the Māori Literature Trust and Huia Publishers, and they run it every couple of years or so, and it's open to writers of Māori descent, and they put you on a program for six months, they hook you up with a mentor, and then they also pay you a little bit of, a little bit of money to help you with your writing, so if you needed a laptop, that would be perfect, or if you needed childcare so that you could get away for an hour or so to do some writing, perfect. And at the end of that six months, you present your, your your finished work, and then they decide whether or not they would like to publish it. And I was really lucky, and they decided that they wanted to publish mine. So Flight of the Fantail was written on that program, and my mentor was a celebrated novelist called Fiti Hiriaka, and I was so lucky to have her because she is really smart and <laughs> like I haven't I haven't done any writing programs like I didn't go to university and I'm not really brainy or anything and I don't know much about the semantics of writing do you know the, like the techniques and tools of writing I think I'm a natural writer but there's little tricks that you need to know as a novelist which I didn't know so I was really lucky that Fitty was there to you know, sort of haul me up and go, hey, wait a minute, you can't do this. It would be better if you did it. Da, da, da. 
you know? So, yeah, that was really cool. And I got so much out of that program. It was, I was so glad I applied. I was quite scared to apply in the beginning. You know, when you're an emerging writer and you're kind of like, oh, I don't know. They might hate it. They might hate my application or whatever. I'm glad I did. So all you emerging writers out there, just go for it because you never know. It must have been such a confidence boost to um, become part of the program and get such an amazing mentor. It was huge. It really was. And even, you know, meeting the other writers and meeting um, people from the Māori Literature Trust. And then we got to go to a couple of writers' festivals as well. And we got to go over to Melbourne and and hang out with more amazing writery people. So, yeah, it was just it was it was fantastic. It was a really great program, and I'm so grateful to everyone involved. So, Flat as a Fantail is your debut novel, is that right? Yeah, yeah, kinda. I actually had two at the same time come out, which was which was quite interesting. So, Flat of the Fantail came when I handed in Flat of the Fantail for editing. I'd gotten into the habit of writing every day, and so. When I had nothing to do, I was kind of like, hmm, what can I do? So I quickly, quickly over the period of a few months, knocked up this other book called Fetu Toa and the Magician. And it's a children's book, you know, for ages about eight, eight to ten-ish. And that got accepted for publication as well. So that was really exciting. And my publishers wanted to bring them out before Christmas. So I had two debut novels coming out at the same time. It was it was kind of trippy. It was pretty cool. It doesn't happen often, apparently. <laughs> Certainly not. It must have been a whole lot of work for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was, actually. <laughs> what would you say was the most uh, fun part of that experience? Finishing. <laughs> <laughs> and getting rid of it. <laughs> because, I don't know, like Flight of the Fantail was technically quite difficult it's got a cast of thousands and it's written from the points of view of of, you know lots of different characters and it was hard man it was really hard and it uh, oh I was in tears a lot of the time and um, I think as a writer when you're sitting alone in your in your little garret with your guttering candle and your your little dry piece of bread next to you because that's all you can afford to eat you know, I'm joking, I, I, I eat more than that. Um, you know, you, you just feel so isolated and so lonely and, like, why am I doing this? Oh, who even cares, you know? Um, so I was really glad to just finish and get it out there and, you know, get get some good feedback and people saying, yay, we liked it. It's like, yay, it's all worth it. So, yeah. I have really mixed feelings about writing. It's one of those things that I feel like I have to do. I don't love doing it. I think that like 10% of the time is amazing inspiration when you're like, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. That works so well. I'm I'm fabulous. How did I think of these things? I'm so amazing. Um, but 90% of it is just hard slog and just trying to move your characters from one place to another you know, it's really, really hard work. But the funny thing is, is that when you when you finish the book and then you read it, you can't tell which bits were the hard slog and which bits were the inspirational bits. You know, it all kind of melds in together. Sign of good editing, I think. Is that what that is? <laughs> <laughs> yay, yay for good editing. <laughs> and your books have been quite well received locally, is that right? 
Yes, they have been, which is so nice. I'm, I'm stoked, actually. Really stoked. Um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes internationally, you know, because it's so, they're so New Zealandy. They've got such a New Zealand flavour, I guess, for readers from other countries. It might feel quite exotic, just the landscape and, and the language, I suppose. I found it very evocative and there's good aspects of New Zealand culture coming through as well. So now that you have those two books done and you've got your daily writing habit, um, what are you working on now? Well, I'm writing up another um, Fetu Tour book. It's not a sequel as such, but I think I'd like to make her a series because I think she's so cute. She's such a cool little character. Oh, her mum got a job working for a magician so her mum is like his personal assistant and does all his bookings and paperwork and all that and um her daughter Fetu is in charge of looking after the animals on on the magician's farm and they're all a bit naughty and a bit mischievous and so Fetu sort of takes on that motherly role of trying to corral all these animals together and 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 keep them on the straight and narrow so yeah, there's a there's a lot to work with, you know, for a series. I think there's a lot of lot of lot of characters and a lot of scenarios where she could go. And I quite enjoy writing her. But yeah, and I've had um, people saying, "Are you going to write a sequel to Flight of the Fantail? And the answer is no. So <laughs> no. It's not really the kind of book that invites a sequel necessarily. I think. But it's too hard. It's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> it yes, yes, I don't know. But I have a lot of people going, but, but, you know, wanting to know the next step in their journey. And uh, wow. Sure. It is a really tough book to talk about without giving spoilers away. It is spoiler city, isn't it? It's really hard to talk about. Yeah, even, even the cover, you know when they were putting the cover together and they were like, what about that? And I was like, no, you can't do that because that, that element there is a spoiler. And they'd be like, oh, okay. So, yeah, the cover went back a few times. But it's got a, a really good pace to it and some great thriller aspects. It's the sort of science fiction speculative elements that are kind of the tricky parts to talk about. Yes, that's right. But I don't really think of it as sort of hardcore sci-fi fantasy it's sort of just a bit of a tilt to your normal worldview. Do you know what I mean? You're not like plonked into a completely foreign atmosphere or anything. It's it's the world that you know, but it just has a bit of a slant to it. And do you think that would be the sort of book that you would write again in the future? I quite like the style of it. You know, that sort of contemporary you know, very contemporary, very sort of everyday sort of elements, but with, you know, that like I was talking about, that, that, that twist. Yeah, I do. I do quite like it. I do quite like it. So where can we find you in your book, Steph? I am, I'm everywhere. Um, I'm online, so I'm clearly online. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and um, Facebook. So if you just type in Steph Martiku, there I am. And you can pick up Friday of the Fantail or Fetu Tour through Amazon or through my publisher, Huya Publishers. And do you have a personal website as well? StephMartiku.com. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> it is. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Steph. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Signal Boost. 
go check out Side of the Fantail. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. Today on Signal Boost, we have Bethany C. Morrow, author of the historical science fiction novel Mem, and the forthcoming YA fantasy novel A Song Below Water. Welcome to the show, Bethany. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So let's begin where I always like to begin, which is kind of a broad overview of you and your work. So why don't you let listeners know who you are and what you write? Okay, so I, again, I'm Bethany C. Morrow. Um, the most important fact about me, obviously, is that I went to UC Santa Cruz. Um, and then- <laughs> And that I was a Porter kid. Yes, that's the most important thing to know. I like to say I'm a, I don't know how well I'm actually recovering, but I'm a recovering expat. I live, and I, and I still just like live on the border of like Quebec and the Northeast of the United States. But I was living in, in Montreal for seven years. The MIM, of course, is set in Montreal. Before that, I lived for a year in Bangor, Wales, and Really didn't even know that I was going to be living in the United States again. That's just how bad bureaucratic stuff is with Quebec. My work is a lot of I would consider uh, speculative literary fiction. My forthcoming YA is a contemporary fantasy novel. I've literally never written. It's like the closest thing to contemporary I've ever written. Probably also the closest thing to fantasy I've ever written. So that was like a complete surprise. But for the most part, my work has always been somewhere between literary and science fiction. And I think that Mim is sort of like a perfect introduction, actually, to to the type of work that I gravitate toward. Awesome. So then tell us about Mim, because it sounds fascinating to me. And one of the things that I read about it while researching all of this is the fact that you chose to omit whiteness from the story. So could you talk about how much that actually affected the novel or rather didn't affect the characters in a sense? It's it's strange because I would say, of course, it impacted it greatly. And then also that you shouldn't really see that impact. I mean, so Mem is set in an alternate 1920s Montreal in which a scientist has discovered a way to extract unwanted memories from people's minds. Um, people who have Mems extracted are called sources. The, the memories themselves are called Mems. And so when you extract this unwanted memory, the byproduct of it is sort of this keepsake. Where it's like a, a clone of you that only houses that memory that you wanted to get rid of. And so that clone or that mem is not sentient, doesn't understand the world around it, doesn't recognize the world around it, basically relives that memory until that memory's emotional sort of core wears out, basically, and then they expire. So along comes, of course, our main character, who is not the first mem ever extracted, but she is an early mem, and she's also the longest living mem. And she also, of course, is cognizant. And so she is more than the memory that she houses. She she actually has all of her sources of memories up until the point that she was extracted. She's able to create her own memories. She has a personality. She has an identity, all of that kind of stuff. So she has been allowed to live out in the rest of the world because she's so evidently not a mem up until a point in 1925 where she gets recalled to the vault, which is where the mems usually live and expire. It's sort of like an underground 
literal safe deposit box. And she's where we start the story is she has been recalled back to that vault and she doesn't know why. So removing whiteness from the story to me, okay, the first, I mean, the, the place that you have to start in that discussion, of course, is what is whiteness? Because I have, I've had people at reading say, oh, it was so interesting that you removed race. And I was like, mm, no, it didn't. The main character is very obviously a black woman. Like it's, you know, it's very blatant all the way throughout. She is a black woman. That's never, that's never disputed. It's, it's very, very clear. Um, and there are, I guess I, I would say European Canadian people in the book. But there is no whiteness. And so what whiteness is, of course, is the sort of the conglomeration for the purpose of power. It's like it's basically an erasure of actual heritage. It's an erasure of of individual, you know, cultures and things coming from Europe. And it's a conglomeration for the purpose of subjugating other people underneath it. So I removed whiteness from the story so that, especially in speculative fiction, you wouldn't have people being like, well, I mean, like, would the professor be a black Canadian or like, would she have, would her family be so wealthy or like, what is slavery? How does slavery impact, you know, this character's backstory? And I'm like, Hey, um, so there's absolutely nothing wrong with leaving that sort of thing intact when, especially when you're not writing like second world fantasy or science fiction, totally valid to keep that sort of thing intact. If that's what you want to do. I did not see any reason to belabor the story I was trying to tell, which is a truly speculative story and a truly science fiction concept with, oh, let me play this like little game of, you know, oppression bingo really quickly so that you can really grasp that she's a black woman. Um, so the easiest thing to do was to erase the power structure that would have imposed upon her. I didn't really change anything about her. There still is ownership. There still is basically enslavement. There still is a, a lack of autonomy or legal standing in the book. It's simply not tied to whiteness. And that was for my benefit and for the main character's benefit. It absolutely did not remove people's races at all, because that's not what whiteness is about. So on, so on one hand, like I said, it, it absolutely plays a huge role and is very far reaching in the book and in the characters. But in another way, by its absence, you just realize, oh, this is this is an imposed oppressive structure this doesn't this isn't a necessity this isn't like this doesn't have to exist this doesn't have to be a component of of how these systems are made up um i mean sadly it's kind of like we will find other reasons we'll find other ways don't worry like we can get rid of, rid of whiteness and still you know we will still have work to do so there are still other oppressive power structures in play in some way shape or form <laughs> even if you take out the whiteness sadly yeah Promise. Cross my heart. I mean, and, and the thing is, I mean, we wouldn't really be able to, this is me talking from a sociological perspective, I guess. And it's not to say that whiteness and white supremacy isn't the root of those, particularly in North America, but it's simply to say that even when I removed that as somebody who was raised in a white supremacist society and nation and hemisphere and world, my imagination still, of course, certain things remain intact because they are sort of invisible and they're sort of like the air you breathe. I just wasn't going to make my main character beholden to a history of violence that had specifically to do with her racial identity. Absolutely. That makes sense. So I'm probably going to end up making this an hour long interview just because I have more questions. I'm here for it. 
Yeah. <laughs> you just mentioned that you looked at this from a sociological perspective, and your background is in sociology in terms of your degree from UCSC. Toss that Woot in there. Woot Banana slugs forever. <laughs> forever. Forever. How does that play into the concept of memory became, becoming a construction and a live thing, and the difference between those memories that aren't cognizant of themselves and everything around them and are, like your main character because I'm, I'm curious about the interplay between those things and how your sociology background played into how you conceptualize that so I always say that I ended up with a social degree not because like oh my gosh this is so fascinating that people think like this I was like oh this is how I think and there's a name for it cool so I I always am like very wary of saying like that sociology I guess sort of like impacts the way that I think about things it's literally the reason I ended up getting that degree um, and doing that study because it made sense to me. It has never made sense to me to look at people or to even to try to think of an archetypal like person and see them as though they um, arose in a vacuum or something. And that that's like, as my, my next like study was in clinical psychological research. It's like my dig at psychology. Okay. And I said it in my classes. I was super, I was super duper popular. I was like, I really don't think you should be allowed to study psychology without a background in sociology. That's just me you can fight me, whatever. But so I, I don't think that I, I don't think that I was sort of like using that. I think that it's just to me, sort of like logic. It's just like, it, it just makes sense to me. So, um, and I'm going to be really super duper honest. A lot of the things that I say about this book are super with the, with the benefit of hindsight. I truly, when I wrote the story was writing a science fiction story, basically. I wasn't writing an allegory. Super awesome that it turns into that. Isn't that the human brain great? But like, so um, for me, she herself was the most interesting person that I could conceive of coming out of this science fiction concept that I thought of. Um, and the concept itself came to me literally laying in bed when I was remembering Dolly the Sheep. Anybody who's heard me talk about this book is going to be like, Dolly the Sheep, we get it. Um, so it was about Dolly the Sheep because when I was a kid, it was like, oh, my gosh, we've just cloned for the very first time. And isn't this amazing? And I was like, I was like, oh, it's the exact same sheep. And they're like, well, no, I mean, the sheep is like newborn and I'm like no so it's like the same age and has all the memories and they're like no because that's not what a clone is and I'm like but that is what a clone is so you made a twin and then the thing kept dying like the first several times my memory of it is like that it it, it died really quickly so they would make this like huge announcement and be super excited and be like no oh. so I was thinking about that once like right after I had written some other book that was completely different from them and I was I was like I wasn't even thinking what am I going to write next I was just laying in bed thinking about stuff and it was like why isn't cloning in science as interesting as it is in science fiction and why doesn't it have to do with memory like why isn't that the way we decide if something is a clone or not and then I was like why isn't it about getting rid of memories because you know if we can make something cruel we will so that's pretty much what I did and then I thought okay well who would be the most important or like the most interesting person in that world and of course a human is not going to be horribly interesting in that world. I mean, at least not by comparison. We all have like organic diseases that do the work of extraction. So, so I'm thinking here's an extract. What, what would be strange about this? And it's of course, if she came with a bunch of memories that did not get extracted. So what does that say about like, about how we share a memory about, um, I guess, like the robustness of memory about the reliability of, of what we think we understand about memory. You know, so it wasn't really like a statement, I guess, on what, you know, what kind of memories don't matter or something as much as Elsie's did. It was more, she is an anomaly and what, 
what does she mean basically without sort of, I guess, like being a slight against other memories. What does she represent if this is who she is? But I think what you'll find in the book is that the source, what happens to the source is the same no matter what kind of memory it is. And so the impact of this, and I guess like the social consequence and the, and the individual consequence of the concept is not a respecter of persons. It's not a respecter of like importance or, or type of memory. So whether you extract Elsie or whether you extract one of Walter's, Walter's memes, what happens to you, the, the person who chose to do it is really the, the thing that I, I feel like is what we should have been paying closer attention to. Hmm. Well, it sounds amazing. And I know that my reviewer, Terry, she was like, let her know that I loved it. Oh, thank you. So I hope everybody goes out and, and grabs the book. But I am curious about a project that you're going to be working on or are working on, have worked on, which is Take the Mic, Fictional Stories of Everyday Resistance, which is you've got an incredible lineup of creators for this. Yes. So tell us about Take the Mic. What is it? What's the concept? So Take the Mic is an anthology that is coming out with Arthur A. Levine Books Scholastic in fall of 2019. I was first approached um, actually by an agent named Beth Fallon and then um, her her partner, Louise Fury, at the time when they were both at, at the Bent Agency. And I, originally I was just asked, would you be interested in sort of like writing a short story about resistance, um, about activism, about whatever, because it was right around the time of the election, um, of the presidential election. And I, instead of like coming up with an idea to give them, I just wrote the whole story and sent it to them because I was like, hey, this is this is where the spigot fits for my rage and like everything. So, um, so I ended up sending them the a short story and it was about um, everyday resistance. It was about a black girl, which of course for me meant I wasn't going to force her to like to to be in these sort of like I guess organized and widely accepted like instances of resistance because I'm like oh sweetheart if you knew what we deal with on a daily basis it's death by a million cuts so I had my character in marching band which I can't believe is the first time I'd written about marching band I am a marching band geek and I, I really loved dealing with what it means to be in marching band and what you believe about yourselves as a squad and that all comes into play with, with the concept of the short story. But basically, this guy tries to, it's a promposal, but he uses something very insensitive to do the promposal to her as a black girl. And it's basically about how she experiences that, everything that that's running through her mind as all of this is happening, all of the confusion and you know, thinking that you know people are more important than, I guess, thinking that people know you and how her, them being in Marching Man together plays into that, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, so Scholastic bought it. And then eventually they came back and asked me if I would like to be the anthologist as well. And I was like, absolutely. But I would really, it needs to be for me, it needs to be about everyday resistance. I'm not interested in telling marginalized kids that like, hey, your activism and advocacy is only legitimate if you like physically go put yourself in harm's way or in a way that especially for the, the black youth among us, you guys are seeing on a daily basis for years at this point that we could be killed and be blamed for it. So there's no way that I'm interested in just doing a quote unquote activism anthology as though I'm telling these kids, hey, 
just surviving isn't enough. Just not dying isn't enough. Just coming out with your, with even a scrap of your mental health intact is not enough. You have to go and do this particular thing, or you have to say this particular thing, or you have to, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. We literally are at a higher risk for losing our lives, regardless of age. You can be 12 years old in a park. Okay. So that was super duper important to me. Like it has to be about everyday resistance because the most important thing is yes, it's uh, the most important thing is it needs to be mirrors for our kids for stuff that they already are experiencing and need to be validated and given permission to like to, to make those spaces safe for themselves and to take up those spaces um, and not to feel like they have to laugh along with jokes that hurt and not to feel like they have to engage in quote unquote respectful discourse about their fucking existence. So that was the biggest thing for me, but it also needs to be a window to kids who who somehow have gotten to this to this age any age basically and didn't know that this is what our everyday was like and didn't know that this was literally what we're going through on a regular these are interpersonal situations and that's for the most part what the collection entails we have darcy little badger we have jason reynolds we have samira ahmed yamil saeed mendez i believe is how you say her name i hope to god because she wrote the most amazing story about um, a latinx girl growing up in utah who basically it a family of trump supporters gives her a shirt to wear at a sleepover without thinking why would you why would you do this and how that situation just gets completely out of control and i i actually asked her to to write something for this and i was just completely blown away by what she by what she produced everybody i mean sophia Quintero, like everybody who's a part of it, absolutely obsessed. I cannot wait for this anthology to come out. I think it is so important. Tell me really quickly, how is it going to be multimedia? Because that that sounds very exciting to me. Okay, so I always feel like everybody's like expecting that there's going to be an iPhone inside of it. Super duper sorry. What I mean is that it's going to be short stories, poetry, and visual art. So it is all fiction, but it's not all, you know, it's not all one format because... We are all different peoples and I really, really, this, I, I love a lot of anthologies that come out and a lot of times I'm like, do I hear more adults talking about this anthology or do I hear more teens talking about this anthology? Um, and so we were really, really interested in, in making something that literally, again, that's why it's fiction as well, literally wanted something that reflects the people that we're trying to give this to, the people that we're trying to empower and shore up with this. We wanted to reach as many of them as possible. I want it to be fiction. I want it to be, um, I want it to be short stories. I want it to be poetry. I want it to be visual art so that hopefully there's something for a lot of different kinds of kids, a lot of, you know, depending on what they like to, to read. So that's, that's what we mean by multimedia. <laughs> That's actually my favorite type of multimedia. Although if you could have a soundtrack that goes along with it, that'd be cool too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I will always have, I always have uh, soundtracks for the things that I write. So just so everybody knows, yes. So why don't you tell me about A Song Below Water? Because not only is it a YA, so it's another thing directed towards a younger audience, but another location, no longer in Montreal, sadly. No longer in Montreal. It is like literally these two projects are the first times I had ever written about a like a real place and not written like second world or ambiguous world science fiction. So that's interesting because they're both being published. So I guess I guess people like when I actually like write about real places and then give a bunch of commentary on them. Mm, that's my favorite part. 
I'm like, listen, I hope, because here's the thing, um, Powell's was, like, really great about um, Mem, and I'm like, I mean, give me the love while you want to, because uh, wait till A Song Full of Water comes out. Um, so A Song Full of Water is, is a young adult contemporary fantasy, so it's basically, it's set in a real place, it's set in Portland, Oregon. So I have a sister who has lived there for, like, 10 years, and so I've spent a lot of time visiting her up there. It is the widest city possibly on earth. And it also is a very self-congratulatory city. So I, as a black woman walking around there and being in that space, I'm always like, is anybody going to ask me what I think of how welcoming and nice it is? They had some of the like most blatant segregationist laws of the like area so it's it it just makes no sense so anyway so i set a song below water in portland on purpose um it's about two black girls and basically the book at the heart for me is about black sisterhood because it saves lives and is the most important thing in the world to me and so it's about these two black girls who are sisters but they're play sisters they're not blood sisters and that to me is a really important aspect probably of a lot of cultures but also just of black american culture and especially of um we have a lot of we have a lot of representation for black kids who are from or have family from the south or you know you know we have a lot of historical stuff about like oh here's what it was like to be a black kid in detroit in the 60s okay well i was born in the 80s in california a bit different it's very, very different. But the funny thing is that people say stuff like, oh, well, it's you're really lucky that you and I'm sure on a very overt level, like, yes, there is a freedom that comes with it. But there's also a very sinister form of liberal racism that exists on the West Coast specifically. Oh, yes. That we experience. And it's very secret. It's very unspoken. And it's basically gaslighting 24 7 because it is it there is it not there well we know it's there i'm i'm experiencing it but you but these people would never admit it so i grew up in sacramento california california obviously is a blue state and everybody likes to think of california a particular way the entire area that i'm from voted red you guys like let's be really really real it's republican central and it's a complete effing lie to act like my upbringing was somehow in this like you know rose tinted glasses and like do you even know what racism is yes sweetheart i do it's a very sinister form of it that happens there because you've got people who are so proud of themselves and are so self-aggrandizing and would never ever ever admit or see their own prejudice and that creates a certain type of terrorism toward marginalized kids um it's not great so you see that running through the background so these two girls that they live in a in a in a portland and in a in a world where there are fantastical creatures so one of the sisters is a siren but sirens for several decades have been exclusively black women and so it's not romantic it's not attractive it's feared it's hated it's hidden so the black community hides sirens basically for their own safety and even in portland even in portland oregon and then the other sister is becoming something but we don't know what she is 
Um, and there are other things. There are, there's a gargoyle. There's what would be called bolocos. I think if you were, if you were, um, it's from African folklore. And I hate to say African, like it's like one nation, but I really do not remember where it would have originated. So that's on me. But I, I intentionally actually kept it a loco when I pluralized it because I, I, one of the things that I was intentionally doing is talking about sort of the telephone effect of black and African history and culture and, and folklore when you are raised on the West Coast, when you don't have the kind of ties that people in other parts of the country may have been able to keep even, I mean, and not to say that there wasn't obviously a huge um, violent divorce that happened there uh, intentionally because of slavery, but specifically when you are in the North, from the North and the West specifically, there's a disconnect and there's a telephone effect where things get adapted and things get sort of changed. And and so that was one of the, that's just like a little thing for me in there that I, I don't know how many people will notice it, but it's like, this is intentionally the wrong way to pluralize these 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 creatures for that reason but anyways it's it's basically about one of them being a siren and having to hide and having this secret in portland oregon and one of them turning into whatever is her natural state and and really feeling like she's coming apart and not knowing what it is and just their love for each other and their relationship and what it's like to be one of a few black kids that sounds amazing, and I'm very excited for you and for the book and for the readers. When is it coming out? That is coming out in winter 2020. <gasps> God, it's too far away, Bethany. I know. <laughs> I, know. It's, I just recently read it. This is how sad this is. I literally just recently reread it because I was like, it's taking forever. I love this book so much. Oh, that's uh, still very exciting. We're just going to have to wait forever for it. And while we're waiting, everybody can go out and buy Mem and read that. And the next fall, they can get Take the Mic, and that will be great. So before we finish up with our goodbyes, why don't you let everybody know where they can find you and where they can find your work? Okay, so you can find me in these Twitter streets, okay? Just like <laughs> the mean streets of Twitter. Constantly in these Twitter streets. My handle is at bcmorrow. I have the exact same handle on Instagram, which I do not understand or know how to do properly, but you know, we just do some things. And then I have my website, which is bethanycmorrow.com, uh, which you can email me through if you had the desire, if you wanted to see more about any of these projects, if you wanted to get some links to purchase um, Mem. Obviously, you can find my books on Goodreads. Yeah, you can pretty much find if literally anybody who wants to find me comes to Twitter. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today, Bethany. I really appreciate it. It's been a ton of fun. Thank you for having me. This has been the best six-hour interview I have ever done. <laughs> I can't wait for you guys to hear it. <laughs> It'll be down to 15 minutes by the time I'm done with it. But, you know, oh I'm just kidding. <laughs> Probably Amazing. won't be. I'm not even that good. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today on Signal Boost. Make sure you go check out Bethany on Twitter, obviously. And go buy a copy of Mem and everything else that she ever makes, because clearly they are going to be awesome. Yay! And my paperback release of Mem is going to be March 2019. So if you want the hardcover, 
which is absolutely freaking gorgeous. Unnamed Press and Jaya nicely did the most beautiful artistic. It is the most perfect encapsulation of this book. So if you want the hardcover, you probably should get that soon because our paperback release is coming up in March 2019. Duly noted. Everybody go buy the hardback now. Buy it for Christmas. Do it. Or any other holiday that comes out in the next month. Kwanzaa's coming up, y'all. Exactly. And with that, I'm going to call it. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org. Yeah.